Okay, everyone, welcome back to yet another episode of The Dating Culture. I have a really amazing guest on today's episode, um, someone who I recently met, um, but I was completely pulled into and sucked in by her energy because um, she is somebody that talks about the most incredible subjects that are extreme taboo, which is right up the alley. For First our- of all, flattered. Yes. <laughs> Which is basically right up the alley for um, this podcast, obviously. So um, I'm going to introduce you, Miss Sonali Rashatwar. <laughs> did I say that right? Yeah, that's as close as it's going to get. Beautiful, beautiful. So why don't you <laughs> tell us who you are and what you do? Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, first of all, Bile. Uh, my name is Sonali Rashatwar. I use she and they pronouns, and it's important for me to say that because, I mean, obviously your audience folks can't see me. Um, And sometimes we just assume based on voice or what people are wearing. Um, But it's important for us to uh, let folks know what pronouns we use um, as a way to, like, normalize transness, as a way to normalize gender identities outside the gender binary. So I use she and they pronouns because I identify as non-binary. And for me, what that means is um, I exist somewhere outside of like a woman or a man, like maybe a little bit of both, maybe a little bit of neither. And what I experience as like gender expansiveness comes from growing up fat, which I would love for us to talk about today and how that impacts well. <laughs> <laughs> how that impacts like my dating life and my clients' dating life. Um, because professionally, I'm known on Instagram as the fat sex therapist. And uh, what I do professionally is I'm um, a trauma sex therapist. And I also do a lot of freelance uh, educating around pretty radical political topics like unlearning fat phobia and understanding body image within like a politicized uh, lens, Uh, teaching other therapists how to offer politicized therapy. So like bringing constructs into the therapeutic room and helping us to teach our clients to understand, hey, client, um, when you're having a really hard time allowing yourself to just rest on a Sunday and like not do any chores and like uh, not catch up on emails, sometimes that's a symptom of internalized capitalism where we have a really hard time uh, allowing ourselves to rest because we believe uh, that every hour of every day must be productive and must be used to produce profit or capital. So that's a little bit about what I do professionally, uh, a little bit about who I am as a person. Since you can't see me, (laughs) I I am a queer, bisexual, non-binary, super fat, Indian American, lower caste, light skin. <laughs> That's some privilege there. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, I grew up upper middle class. Uh, my parents live in New Jersey. I live in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. like you. Yeah. Um, I've always lived in this area. I haven't really moved around a whole lot. So my, my roots are like planted deep. A lot of my family is here mm-hmm. uh, in this area and like Jersey, Maryland, Virginia. Cool. You know, I think it's so incredible that you have found such a specific type of clientele that you work with. Um, And how did you, over time, come up with this specific type of clientele that you wanted to work with? If I were to tell you that it was, like, calculated and I, like, had this path, I'd be lying. It was completely by chance. 
Uh, I feel like in trying to better understand what I've experienced, I've created this body of knowledge that I use in my work with clients. So I am a sexual trauma survivor who works with sexual trauma survivors. Mm -hmm. And I am someone who's been in an abusive relationship who worked with domestic violence survivors. Um, I am someone who grew up fat as a kid, was put on non-consensual diets by my parents. And I work with clients who are trying to unlearn diet, um, not diet trauma. They're trying to unlearn fat phobia and they're trying to unlearn these like really narrow body image ideals while recovering from diet trauma. Mm. So I feel like it's this like path that I've taken to, to like heal myself and better understand and find language for what I've experienced. Mm. And what's happened is I've been able to offer that language to others mm -hmm. to help others understand their own experiences. That's powerful. That's really powerful. I mean, especially being, I mean, I'm South Asian as well. And so experiencing that, I mean, I didn't even really understand or ever acknowledge that phobia mm -hmm. um, really until I saw your page, to be quite honest, because <laughs> growing up, you know, just not even my mom, she was, my mom was always very hard on herself for her body and she never gave herself the credit for what mm. she had birthed mm. three human beings, yeah. you know, and embracing the motherhood that she brought and the, um, you know, like just embracing herself as a woman and being like, yeah, my body looks the way it does, but look at these humans that I yeah. created. And a lot of people nowadays, especially in this Instagram, social media society that we live in, people are so hard on themselves. So if you could talk a little bit about fat phobia, mm. what it is, um, how, how, what your approach is for people on overcoming it and like, you know, how it affects our society, not even just the South Asian community, but society in general and what mm. it's really doing and how it's traumatizing people. Mm. So fat phobia, one thing that I want to make sure that we're not talking about is that sometimes I think when we think about fat phobia, we only think about the individual things that someone might say to us, like an auntie at a party. Mm -hmm. And absolutely, when Jetnanti says to you, <laughs> "Do you have a?" You're looking really healthy. <laughs> you look like you put on some weight. Like when a specific auntie says that to you, absolutely, that is fat phobia. Mm. It is one type of fat phobia, though. That's like interpersonal fat phobia. So between two people, but we can also internalize fat phobia. That's a totally different type, and that's when we almost like we swallow the structure and we like truly believe it inside of us. And the structure teaches us that there is this like hierarchy of the value of bodies and that fat bodies are lower on the hierarchy and thinner bodies are higher on the hierarchy. And so when we internalize that, that this understanding of bodies and their worth based on like a metric like that, sometimes we will treat ourselves badly because of where we believe we are on that hierarchy. Well, we might stay in relationships that don't serve us for longer because we've internalized this understanding that our body is worth less. Um, and that's based on any beauty ideal that we are not feeling like we meet up to. So fat phobia really is linked to other types of beauty politics. Uh, within South Asia, I'm thinking of like colorism, shadeism, um, the pressure to be like a hairless cat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> hairless mm -hmm. cat everywhere except for like brows and your hair and your actual hair <laughs> but body hair exists that's why it's called body hair <laughs> 
I went through it my whole life. I, went, I experienced it my whole life. And I think mm -hmm. I remember a while back, somebody posted something about body hair. Um, and it was, I think it was like some sort of South Asian Instagram account of some sort. And I just remember talking about the subject and so passionately because I was made fun of so much for my body hair growing up mm -hmm. and being a teenager mm -hmm. and being a South Asian minority teenager mm -hmm. in a society where people are already hard on you um, because you're a minority and because your culture is, you know, has already, Different. has already mm -hmm. created guidelines for what you should show up as. And then literally my whole adolescent years feeling like I wasn't beautiful enough or I wasn't good enough or because of my body hair mm -hmm. was, you know, I look back at it now and I'm like, that is the most insane thing I've ever heard of. Yeah. Um, with body hair in South Asian context, it's often a form of anti-blackness. Mm -hmm. So the reason why some of us have this like strong pressure to remove it, and that this is different from like a white supremacist context. I'm talking about like intra-South Asian beauty politics. The pressure to remove it is often because our skin will look lighter when it doesn't have hair on it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like uh, very blatant. And so it's a form of anti-blackness. Yeah. It really built is. into the beauty politic, right? And we see that with the bleaching creams already. And the hair removal is like one and the same. It's I that whole fair and lovely thing. I mean, it's finally people are like yeah. acknowledging it as something that's kind of embarrassing. Um, and so, you know... I mean, I wonder how the brand is doing still. <laughs> I hope it's tanking, even though we know it's not. <laughs> I know. People still want to be <laughs> fair and lovely, apparently. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I guess with your clients or just people in general, what, what do you suggest to people that they do to overcome or at least acknowledge that what they're experiencing mm. is fat phobia? So I have to be honest, it's a long-term process. It's not something that is like... Um, oh, I've learned about gender pronouns and within a couple of months, maybe I'm using pronouns in the right way that I should <laughs> mm -hmm. or the purpose of what a pronoun is or, or why I should know what pronouns I use and why I should honor someone's usage of Zezer or he, her pronouns. Mm -hmm. it, it like it's taken me like I think I only finally swore off intentional weight loss like four or five years ago, that's only how long it's been. And like mm -hmm. the way that I was talk thinking about myself and my body back then, mm -hmm. um, I was calling the type of eating that I was doing stress eating or emotional eating. Um, I was thinking about uh, what kind of clothing I could wear to make my body look slimmer, uh, what colors I would wear to make my body look slimmer. Um, not posting photos of myself that weren't at flattering angles. And so like the fat phobia was deeply t connected to all of these decisions um, outside of like the weight loss pressure I was receiving from my parents. And that came through um, because I grew up upper middle class, my family has wealth to like dangle around. And so what I experienced was also like, I would consider it mild, um, but it, it was like mild form of financial abuse. And yeah. There were a lot of promises made to me based on the money that my parents could offer me if I would voluntarily go under the knife to have a weight loss surgery. Oh, my God. And it's actually really scary, but like one in 200 people die on the table from that surgery. And so what's so sad is like after that, and my sister was the only one who came to me to say like, hey, this is really dangerous. Mm -hmm. I don't think you should go through with this. 
My sister was the only one who said that to me. Wow. Um, so you almost went through with this, the, a surgery. Uh, yep. Oh my goodness. To like cut out healthy tissue from my body. That's insane. And it, it, what the crazy thing is, is that people go through with it because they're so unhappy with the way they look. Totally. And how, what ultimately how they feel. Or they're like conned or they're like terrified by, you know, doctors who use these like really fat phobic scare tactics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But my parents really wanted a thin daughter and they would rather have a dead one than a fat one is how it made me feel. Oh my God. I just got chills down my spine. Isn't that sad? Um, I mean that, how did that affect your dating life? How did that affect how you showed up in the world? How oh my God. I know that. I know this is like a really intense question because no. the only thing I can think of is like, there's a direct you... link. You're of absolutely course. right. Yeah. Like from the age of like young, like way too young to be telling little girls this information about their body and that the fact that it's like got this fixed value on a lower end of a spectrum. I think I was receiving those messages like, before puberty, like 11, 12, 13. And my parents were telling me like really, they had actually a really strong analysis about structural fat phobia where they were like, you know, you're going to be excluded by your peers. They're going to make fun of you. Um, Men are not going to want to date you and marry you. It's going to be harder. It might be harder to have children, which none of these things are true, obviously. Right. Um, but I internalized these things. They told me that I wouldn't get farther in my career. People wouldn't hire me. People wouldn't respect me if I talk about subjects that I, I was interested in. And at the time I wanted to be a doctor, mm. um, because my parents, um, had a lot of control over the things that I was interested in. Uh, had a lot of influence there. So they had a really concrete understanding of the way that fatness and fat phobia would affect my life. And so I internalize a lot of these understandings of my inherent value of my body, that it was worth less than thinner girls. And I got myself into really bad situations as like a teenager. Um, I started having sex early. Mm. I wouldn't say like too early. I feel like it was appropriate for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted to be doing it. So part of it was consensual, but I was doing it in really risky ways. Okay. So I was like 15 and like they were older men on the internet. So in that sense, risky. We're meeting like after midnight. No one knows where I am. Risky. Right. Yeah. You're putting yourself <laughs> Not in using condoms. Risky. Yeah. yeah and like, yeah. did you feel like you were doing those things for validation? Yeah. I felt like, um, I'm not getting this attention from my peers. This like you're a desirable person attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I needed to get it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so actually it was like really creatively getting those needs met because as a human kid, we do need to find creative ways to get those needs met. Otherwise we grow into adults who just feel like uh, we're lacking Mm. in in some ways. We just constantly live our lives trying to get that need met. Mm -hmm. So it was creative as hell on my part, but uh, also very dangerous. dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, I'm glad that you're able to look at the situation now and, you know, I mean, find light in the situation as well. Um, but you know, these are not unrealistic situations where people get themselves into because of they're seeking validation because they're seeking love because they're seeking comfort. I need to feel desirable. I need to feel attractive. I needed to feel like I was worth something to someone else in a way like they just wanted me there. Mm -hmm. Um, not because I was useful just because I was cute Mm -hmm. and hot. 
Mm. And you're still cute and hot. You are still cute and hot. (laughs) Um, And, you know, just jump, just adding on to that, I guess, what, what was your breaking point? Oh, I know. Let me tell you about it. I ask this question because I feel like the breaking point is really just the ultimate low that comes with the biggest lesson. Oh, and I would love to hear what your, what your breaking point was. So I was about 19 and I was on shadley.com. So there's like two breaking points I'm thinking of. And the first one was when I was 19, I was on shadley.com and I was talking to a 34 year old man who lived in like lower Alabama and he had all these like Doberman pinchers and (laughs) he was like an interesting dude. He had like long hair and he seemed like not that conservative, but also he was talking to a 19 year old, which is like really fucking weird. Mm -hmm. And my parents almost let me marry him. They almost let me like go and meet him and like, they really weren't like, get the fuck off of Shelly.com. What are you doing on there? I was just like obsessed Yeah. With, because I had this idea that my body didn't have value. And so I had just had to like, uh, like nab somebody as fast as I could. Wow. Yeah. Especially because it was like this, also this under this ruse of like, it had to be within the confines of compulsory heterosexuality. Right. So I also like didn't really explore my attraction beyond men, which it, it has, it, which it existed even mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was extremely homophobic at that time. I like grew up in a homophobic home. I had extremely homophobic peers. Mm. Um, and so it, it blocked me from ever being able to get there until a little bit later. Mm-hmm. And then my low breaking point was when I was in this abusive relationship in my early twenties for about a year and a half. And that man broke really important parts within me. Mm. Things that needed to be broken. Good. Good. Yeah. These these ideas that like approval from men are going to give me happiness. Um and that love is supposed to hurt and that mm. like these really painful narratives that needed to get broken were broken by him in really harmful ways. Um and fuck that man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have one of those too. <laughs> we all do. Oh. The ones that come and teach you the biggest lessons oh. come with the most fucked up energy. Oh God. <laughs> and it's so telling like mm. how long I stayed there mm. um, and, and what it took for me to finally leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had finally, and I had met, I'd had my first like girl crush and I'd had my first like, tryst with this like girl in my women's studies class at Temple University. Beautiful, beautiful, (laughs) beautiful. On our last day of class, I baked her like vegan blueberry matcha cupcakes. That's because she was vegan. (laughs) So thoughtful and just so sweet, you know. Um, She pulled me out. She pulled me out of that. Wow, that's beautiful. So that was your first relationship with a woman. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. When when was that point of... um, realization that you were interested in dating women at that point I think it took me I think I'm still working through this idea that I'm not queer enough because oftentimes this is what internalized biphobia looks like so as a bisexual person um, some folks don't realize but they think that bisexuality means that I'm attracted to men and women 
But what it means is that I'm attracted to people who are of my gender, people who are of other genders. Mm-hmm. So it's really very similar to the definitions of like um, polysexuality or pansexuality, attraction to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was her, her name was Tessa, and Aww. she was the one who made me feel tinglies in my stomach Aww. when I would like look across the, <laughs> the classroom at her and I was like, Oh, I she's, hope you're listening, she's, Tessa. <laughs> she's so smart. We had a falling out a few years later, but oh, okay. <laughs> I hope you're not listening, Tessa. <laughs> I'm really sorry, Tessa. I'm really sorry for what so, I've done. So <laughs> you know, so you went through. Okay, so you had this crazy childhood where you were pressured to, you know, be in this specific body type that your parents wanted you to have Mm -hmm. to the point where you were going to go through with a surgery Mm -hmm. that could have risked your life, that could have risked your life. Mm -hmm. And you then almost married a (laughs) 35-year-old man living in Alabama. And then you uh, were in an awful abusive relationship. And now you're bisexual and you're, you know, also dating women. What? Wow, this trajectory. Is I just love it. I love it. Up and up. I, I think it's beautiful. What do your parents think? Uh, so my mom has been a lot more accepting. Beautiful. Uh, I'm terrified to tell my dad. Absolutely okay. terrified. Okay. And I'm attracted to all genders. Mm. So it could very well be that I, and I shouldn't say end up, because I'm not really looking for the one or mm-hmm. a soulmate. I'm an Aquarius. I have very, you know, insecure attachment <laughs> and commitment issues. <laughs> Don't we all as 20, uh, 2019 dating <laughs> hashtag that oh, blame it on my astrology. <laughs> <laughs> I blame it on my sun sign. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. My mom's been a lot more open to it. Um, she of course still says things like, well, okay, you're bisexual, but, and she asked like really thoughtful questions. She's like, you know, is this going to harm your career negatively? And I'm like, no, it's going to help me because people who are bi are going to know, okay, I can come to her. She is going to be a safe haven to understand what my biphobia looks like and how to point it out and how I can like pull it out. Mm. And then my mom was like, okay, okay. It's not going to affect your career. That's great. Um, and she was like, but can you still, you know, find yourself a dude when you're ready to get married? And I was like, no. Can you still bring home a man? <laughs> no. No, mom. Sorry. I, I can't guarantee that. Um, you know, it's so interesting. Like, I mean, my mom is the same. She's like, you're going to bring home a Gujarati, a Gujarati doctor, right? And I'm like, hell no, probably not. You know, I mean, I, you know, I can't, you know, never say never watch, right? I'll find me a doctor. Um, but you know, I think, you know, I think what we as our generation sometimes fail to realize that it's not just our lessons that are needed to be learned. It's mm. our parents that they that are still going through the learning process. And we look at them and say, wow, you came to a country where you didn't know English. You, you built an education. You built your career. You, you, you know, raised children here. Um, and so I think that's incredible. And I commend your mom for coming around and saying, you know what? I, I'm OK with this and I'm, I'm, I'm starting to understand this. And I think like, when was, I guess, when was that point of her acceptance and how did she come to that realization that, you know what, this is my daughter, she is who she is. And I love her regardless, no matter what. To be totally frank, my parents are also, they were a love marriage, an intercaste marriage. 
And they have said from the beginning, you know, as long as you are happy, Sonali. So they have their requests. And mom wants me to marry from her upper caste. Dad wants me to marry from his lower caste. And they'll have their requests. But like the, the, the bottom line has always been as long as you're happy, Sonali. And that doesn't mean that they haven't still been trash. <laughs> Even after I've been happy. <laughs> yeah, so, like, no, I've had moments where my yes. mom has just been such a jerk. And I'm like, I don't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now that I'm obviously older and like much more understanding, I'm like, you know what? This is her pain. Mm-hmm. She has to deal with it. And I will continue walking my path and showing her love from whatever distance it needs to be that day. <laughs> yeah, we heal our ancestors when we heal ourselves. Mm. My my bestie Sharman says that every time she like has sex, and this is like back in her single days, but she was like, you know, every person who I get to fuck, like casual sex is another for like my ancestors who didn't get to like have sex freely. Wow. Can that you- is such a great perspective. <laughs> you know, I've been really hard on myself lately. I'm like, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to go out. I'm not going to date people. I'm not going to hook up with anybody because they don't deserve my energy. Mm. And I've had this like protectiveness, but I also feel like shit every time I hook up with somebody. <laughs> Cause I'm like, why wow. did I give my energy to you? You know, <laughs> but you know but what? That's a great way to look at it. Slutty liberates yeah our crude past it really does it really does wow i like that here's all the sex that you weren't able to have (laughs) i'm doing it for you (laughs) but safely (laughs) safely safely. less riskily than sonali did at age 15 (laughs) it's okay we've all been there i I hope my mom doesn't listen to this my mom asked me the other day she's like what's a podcast i'm like don't worry about it Like podcast? I'm not sure what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pod, pod? Uh, yeah, I don't know what that is. <laughs> um, so speaking of caste system, um, yeah, let's let's talk about the caste speaking system. Podcast. Yeah, let's 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 talk about the caste system. Um, and I just want to hear your perspective on it. I know we talked a little bit about this last time. I personally, like, my parents were from two different castes, and that was oh. always. It's actually funny. I never actually, you know. I never like took that into consideration, but that was such a big reason why they always fought. Oh, um, yeah, my parents did not get along um, at all. But my dad was from a lower caste, well, quote unquote, lower, right? Mm. Um, lower caste from a village because there's um, like caste within the upper caste, right? Right. That's yeah, what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. he was from. Well, actually, my mom, my, my parents are from two very different castes. Um, so my dad is like from the villages, farm, farm, farmer caste or whatever, I guess mm-hmm. it's called. Mm-hmm. My mom is from the city and she, her family is like the, um, tailors and, mm-hmm. um, I guess working like class. merchants, merchants. Exactly. So there was always that gap, but I don't, and again, I don't know the history of what happened back in the day. I don't know the depths of the arguments that went down, but I mean, from what I've picked, picked up on throughout the years is that, you know, dad's side of the family was very, you know, not accepting of my mom because she was from a different caste. And then my mom's side of the family was not accepting of, you know, his his upbringing and his caste because he was, quote unquote, a lower caste. So, like, this caste system, mm. war, let's end it in this room. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I wish. I wish like, that I know. Because it still exists. It still exists. My mom yeah. still is like, you need to marry a Brahmin. Mm. And I'm like, you should marry a Brahmin. <laughs> You want it so bad, you do it. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about your perspective on the caste system. Um, it's terrible and bad. <laughs> that is a fact. 
I think people forget how actually violent it is. Mm -hmm. I feel like because as part of the diaspora who live in the U.S., we live really far from maybe like the epicenter, right? Like we live far from India. And some of us don't know. So this is all knowledge that I have acquired by attending Unlearning Caste Supremacy Workshop, um, created by Tenmori Sundararajan, who was like a Dalit organizer and activist, um, and led by Sharman Hussain, who is also a brilliant organizer. And this, these trainings are housed under Equality Labs. And through these workshops, I've learned that Hinduism has the caste system baked into it. Mm. It's like a casserole. Mm -hmm. And it's like written in the scripture that if a, a Dalit person, if a lower caste person, if someone who is considered untouchable, which is now a slur that we shouldn't use, mm. uh, if someone who is of that level even hears our holy scriptures, that within their ears we should pour molten metal and, and they should become deaf because these words are not meant for them. They are so impure. We see casteism not just through scripture, but we see it through our culture. So when there's this like strong pressure to marry along caste lines, it is for the purpose of preserving caste purity and caste lineage because often the pressure is really strong for, for women because we are the ones who will have children and we are the ones who are expected to uh, carry on tradition and cultural norms like food and recipes and holiday traditions um, and like pujas and stuff mm -hmm. if, we're, mm -hmm. if, if we're talking about like Hinduism. Uh, all that cultural like maintenance is on our backs. Mm -hmm. and so that's why women especially receive that pressure uh, to, to maintain class lineage. Um, and that's why we see like lynchings in India based on like intercaste marriages. Mm -hmm. um, that's why we see like horrifying mob violence based on people who have been per uh, perceived to have been eating beef. Mm -hmm. Even though India is the largest exporter of beef in the world. Really? I did not know that. It's like the largest hypocrisy. Wait a minute. <laughs> Hold on. Wait, what? <laughs> Everybody in India praises the cow. I did not know that. That's insane. Hindus in India are especially like, so this hypocrisy really goes so far as to show us what the rise of Hindu fascism and Brahmin supremacy is doing in India. Jesus, good Lord. I had no idea. That's insane. Well, thank, you for, thank you for, thank you for sharing because <laughs> I was always like, Oh, India's, you know, you, you would never be, you would never see someone kill a cow in India. No, nope. or at least in primarily Hindu nope. <laughs> focused uh, areas. Isn't that bananas? That is the most absurd. That's probably the most crazy thing I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. I will say, mm -hmm. um, Wow. And, you know, I think like, you know, I think it, to, uh, to a certain degree, like something structural, like a caste system probably worked for a certain time, time period. I mean, worked still means like, we're still talking, I feel like a similar parallel would be like capitalism. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, capitalism feels like it's working for people who aren't like poor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Billionaires are like, yeah, capitalism is working for me. Exactly. Yeah. It's working like, totally, in that. Yeah. Right? Working in that. And so exactly. it's yeah. people at the top of the hierarchy. Absolutely. It's totally working for you guys. You're loving it, benefiting, and just people at the bottom are not loving it. Right. 
I mean, they're going through the, the, the shit show of it, right? Mm-hmm. Literally, because zealots are expected to clean up human excrement without, uh, it's called manual scavenging, and it happens in some places of India. It happens without protective equipment. Oh my goodness. So like pe- like men are being lowered with ropes below this like street level into like a sewer and coming out completely covered in human excrement. This is what the quote unquote untouchables do in India. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In in some castes. And not all not all the Lith castes will do this. That breaks my heart. That really breaks my heart. I mean, you know, I have, I mean, I obviously I'm, I do makeup and I'm a bride or a bridal makeup artist. I'm a bride. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm not a bride. Um, I'm a bridal makeup artist. And I see sometimes like my, my clientele is primarily Gujarati. And so Gujaratis are really big on like, you know, the caste system and stuff. And I see sometimes these girls are like, they get so excited when they find somebody who is within their same caste and then within their same village mm-hmm. but I'm curious what would happen if they didn't have that you know and if they did it they couldn't like mm-hmm. that pressure there's such a negative there's so much negativity that people hold on to when yeah. they're like oh my god yeah. he's not Patel he's not part of this village he's not you know what I mean? and I think like you know we're slowly moving in the direction of like learning how to let go and learning how to like teach our parents that this is something that is you know, probably not going to happen in this society and in this generation anymore. But the anxiety that goes into it, I mean, even to this day, I genuinely feel this like 1% of pressure of what if I just, you know, brought home somebody that just wasn't, you know, Gujarati. Mm-hmm. Like my, I know my mom's going to, it's that fear of having that conversation. Yeah. I mean, and, and in some households, there is physical abuse that's involved mm-hmm. because of, because you're going outside of the norms yeah. of what you were t- supposedly taught. Yes. So this is why I love talking about fat phobia and casteism, because all of this is a conversation about conformity. Mm. So whenever we feel that pressure to maintain the caste lineage, whenever we experience that pressure to um, aspire towards a mainstream body image ideal, uh, body size ideal, skin color ideal, hair length ideal, hair straightness ideal, hair thickness ideal, Mm -hmm. right? I Mm -hmm. could go on and on. Oh, yeah. All of this is about conformity and how like tight that little boxes that we have to stuff ourselves into and the parts of ourselves that we have to like shave off in order to fit in the box. It's suffocating. Yeah. It requires maintenance in order to stay within that box, within Mm -hmm. the confines. Mm -hmm. It's rigid. It's harsh. And it doesn't allow us to be fully human. Mm -hmm. And so when, when I try to help others understand about, Fat phobia, I feel like I have to really praise myself for being and staying fat. So I really commend you for <laughs> being somebody in, you know, somebody that exists in this world that really pushes fat phobia. And I really think that um, after I started following you on Instagram, I, you know, I put on like 10 pounds because I was just like stressed out and I was just like, you know, food, food became a comfort. And then I stopped feeling bad about the fact that I'm turning to food as a place of comfort and saying, this is just what I want. This is all I fucking want right now (laughs) is to just enjoy this pizza Mm -hmm. and not feel bad about it Mm -mm. and not feel bad about it at all. Mm -mm. And, you know, it's one thing if I was physically like, I'm actually not doing well. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm sick and I need to go to be going to the doctors, but none of that was happening. Right. I was just simply being hard on myself. And actually that stress, I think personally is more detrimental to your health. I totally agree. 
to like to your long term health. Yeah. And embracing it and enjoying it is probably much more beneficial yeah. for your health while you're enjoying eating your pizza, while you're enjoying eating whatever the yes. hell you want to eat. You know, I love pizza. <laughs> pizza's so good. Pizza's okay. So and good. studies now that are helping us to understand what fat phobia looks like uh, through research helps us to see that uh, it actually, there isn't this predictability around fatness that uh, if someone is super fat that they will just like die on the spot after they reach a certain uh, pound or weight. Mm -hmm. uh, it's actually the most dangerous, it's actually most dangerous to be underweight. Mm -hmm. Even like five to 10 pounds underweight can be uh, so dangerous so as to create a uh, heart and gut problems, all kinds of other things, mm -hmm. uh, which we do not see existing on uh, the high end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And being fat is not as dangerous to one's health as experiencing fat phobia. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing is like weight stigma causes so much stress on individuals. Uh, on my clients, we I often have to talk them through how to quiet this chatter that happens in our minds when we are predicting what someone else is thinking about our bodies. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, right, yeah. our brains go into a place of, I'm hard on myself, and then automatically ruminating on the thought of what somebody else is already thinking about them without them physically actually saying the words. Yeah. We've created, we've created, we've been really, we've taught, we've been taught so well to create a narrative so well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's so, so unhealthy. It's and so right, unhealthy. We, we create these like tiny worlds for us to live in mm -hmm. that are so boundaried and limited. And I know I that that's where my internalized fat phobia comes into. I don't mm -hmm. like being stared at. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like having my photograph non-consensually taken on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like people like to point and laugh while I'm walking. Um, and I don't like so public walking for me is like um, that's that's hard for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it is so rare that someone would take a photo of me on the sidewalk. It's right. so rare that someone would point and laugh. Right. Um, it's so rare that people stare. And so what I've been working through with my therapist is actually like, Sonali, you live in a fucking city. Uh, you don't live in like a quaint country town. You don't live in Alabama. Right. <laughs> and thank God. Where people like look each other in the eye and say like, right. good afternoon. Right. She was like, you live in a city. You do not have to look at other people's faces. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. To like predict what they're thinking about you. And I always tell people, I, there was at one point where I was obviously becoming, you know, I go through emotional phases with social media. Everybody does. Um, there was at one point where I said, you know what, even when I think that somebody is talking shit, um, or even when I think that they're not, they probably are. So just accept it for what it is because the chitter chatter, even if it's, if it's happening in my brain, that's one thing, but just know that it's constantly happening outside of my brain, mm. which is out of my control completely. And, you know, coming to a place of complete. I wouldn't say complete because I'm not some like, you know, Buddhist or something, but coming to a place of where majority of my brain is now accepted who I am in this body, in this world mm -hmm. is, has literally been my ticket to just pure peace and happiness. And I think when it comes to like dating, when it comes to accepting your body for what yeah, it is, accepting yeah. your caste your culture or mm -hmm. whatever it is, you know, you are who you are, you know, and learn how to embrace what has come in front of you um, and look at yourself in the mirror and say, repeat, like repeatedly tell yourself you look beautiful or you look, you feel strong or you mm -hmm. feel great, you know, and I think that people don't, you know, I'm glad that we are shifting in a self-love 
you know, direction of self-love, mm-hmm. but people don't really know how to break down what self-love is. Yeah. So. And I also feel like we should not make that the end goal. Right. Because I think for some folks, self-love feels so unachievable or it feels so foreign or it feels like a total lie when someone looks in the mirror and says it. And so I say like, okay, what about body neutrality? Mm-hmm. What if your mind space could just be more free because you're not worried about what someone else is thinking or saying about your body or how your belly is jiggling in a certain dress mm-hmm. or how or how much food you should be eating for the rest of the day based on whatever X, Y, and Z. How much like more mental space would we have if we just, if our bodies were just weren't a thought. Right. Exactly. If you just literally eliminated that one factor and set yourself free um, out of this mental jail that you've put yourself in. Yep. Um, and and I, to be fair, like it, a lot of these are like socially constructed jails too. Of course. So yeah. there are like real implications that I have for being like a fat person in the world, right? Like doctors will not treat me well. Uh, airplanes will not treat me well. <laughs> um, just like, for example, I call it societal bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> That's my phrase that I always do. I'm like, I call that societal bullshit. <laughs> um, but I wanted to just thank you for taking the time to break down what fat phobia was talking about the caste system, talking about your personal experiences with dating and the pressures that you put yourself through and the hell you put yourself through to now come to this wonderful place of self acceptance. (laughs) And now you're helping other people with their own personal issues when it comes to these subjects. So um, I'm just going to wrap this up really quickly. Um, and just say thank you. And I think you're an amazing human. And I definitely think that we have to do it in another episode because I feel like this topic of fat phobia and how we show up in the dating world is really, really important. I mean, people are constantly looking for love and they don't know how to break that down. And they don't understand that like these specific factors have so much to do with it. Um, and, you know, a lot of it starts from within. So um, any final comments? <laughs> if you're fat and you're listening, the best piece of fat sex dating advice that I've ever received is to remember that the person you're on a date with already knows how fat you are. <laughs> Beautiful. So you don't need to like contort your body and like wear shapewear and like be uncomfortable and like only let them see like one side of your face or like turn the lights off when you get home to have sex. Um, the person is already so attracted to you at exactly the way that your body looks. They've seen you from all angles already. You've met in person. It is okay to like, just let your belly jiggle the way it's going to jiggle when you're having sex. Beautiful. (laughs) Let it jiggle. (laughs) I love it. Thank you so much for being on this episode. Thanks so much for having me, Pyle. Yay.